Let's, uh, let's show appreciation for our praise team for leading us so well today. Thank you, guys. And uh, especially to, uh, where's Jeremiah? Where'd he run off to? Find, Jeremiah found a seat. Jeremiah came down. We were short a drummer. So Jeremiah came down from Vernon today to play for us. So thank you for coming down. Jeremiah is a fantastic musician and uh, truly loves the Lord. So appreciate him. We met him, uh, JW. If you remember, we met Jeremiah in Vernon. JW and me and Lori and... Uh, who else went down there with us? The kids, okay? My, my folks went down and we did a revival at Second Baptist in Vernon. That's where I met Jeremiah, was the drummer there uh, for a while. And so we got to know him and, and he's filled in for us a few times. So we appreciate that. Our text for this morning for our Easter sermon is Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 34 and 35. Romans chapter 8. 34 and 35. Um, from time to time, there are high-profile uh, criminal trials that wind up on TV, and they really do capture the imagination of our entire nation. Perhaps you can remember some of these high-profile trials. We even have had one here in the past year. And there's this moment as we're watching our televisions and they announce uh, the verdict has come in. The jury has reached a verdict. They're going to announce the verdict and they bring in uh, the defendant and the judge asks him to rise as the uh, sentence or the, or the verdict is read. And that, that person's life, we understand in that moment, is hanging in the balance. And the camera focuses in there on the defendant and his attorney standing next to him. And their future is dependent upon 12 people that they don't even know. And then we see that moment of great relief if they're determined to be not guilty. Or uh, that terrible moment uh, where they recognize that their fate is sealed when the jury comes back with the guilty verdict. And then after the guilty verdict, uh, perhaps that day or a few days later, or after the pre-sentencing report and all the other things come in, they'll show another, uh, on television, they'll show another moment in the courtroom where we watch the sentence handed down, usually by the judge. And as the judge hands out the sentence to the condemned, he will sometimes comment, on the case, the evidence, the actions of the defendant. He'll scold the defendant and tell him, you are depraved. Your crime was heinous. You could have done all of this, but you chose to go this way. And then perhaps he will sentence the condemned to a life in prison. Or sometimes he will sentence him to a sentence of hundreds of years incarcerated. And if you're like me, in that moment even recognizing what this person has done and their tremendous crimes, uh, you, you shudder in fear for that person. And you think about how they will walk out of that courtroom and they will be processed into the prison system and they will likely never know freedom again. Or perhaps they will even spend years on death row before they are executed. Imagine the judgment 
We can think of the judgment that we see in court. But I'm asking you to imagine the judgment. Another judgment that we are told of in our Bibles. A judgment that will take place at the end of the age where God will not even let one tiny sin go unpunished. We're told in the Bible that it's appointed once for a man to die, and then the judgment. And if we let our minds wander for just a minute, we can imagine ourselves standing there like that defendant before the judge, and yet we are imagining ourselves standing there before a holy God who will do justice. One of God's attributes is that He is just. He never does anything wrong. And so He's going to be a good and righteous and just judge. And He will punish all the wickedness that has been existing in this world that's been going on forever since we can't even remember. And because God is just and because He's righteous, He must sentence the condemned sinner to a just sentence of eternal death and hell separated forever from God and His goodness. And of course, I say that, I wrote that when I was drafting my sermon. I thought, that doesn't really seem to be a, a very good way to start off your Easter sermon, uh, service and your Easter sermon after all these triumphant songs. We have all these beautiful clothes in here today. This beautiful cross and all the songs of triumph. But Easter doesn't really pack the punch that it should unless you understand what you are celebrating. Why are we dressed up? Why have we flowered this cross? Why have we sung the songs of triumph? Because today we celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. And what does that mean? Believer, what does it mean for you? It means that you will never have to stand like that before the judge. You will never stand in front of a judge condemned. And you will never be separated from Him. That is the message this morning. This is our Easter message. Here it is in a sentence. Easter is a celebration that Jesus is alive. And that means that sinners who trust in Jesus will never be condemned by God or separated from Him. Let me say it again. Today we celebrate that sinners who trust in Christ will never be condemned by God or separated from Him. Look at your text there. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us indeed. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In this passage, in this uh, larger passage of Romans chapter 8, Paul is teaching the Romans the gospel. Paul had never been to Rome. So one of the great things about the book of Romans is that Paul uh, is explaining the gospel and he's laying it out methodically and clearly for the Romans so that they will understand his theology. This is why it's regarded as probably one of the most important books in the entire Bible. It is said that someone can read through the book of Romans and just read four scriptures. Romans 3.23, 6.23, 5.8, 
and 10, 9 through 13, and they can understand the gospel. We refer to those verses as the Roman road. But perhaps the most powerful chapter in the whole Bible is Romans 8. Because Paul covers so much ground in just 39 verses. He starts this chapter by telling believers that they must live by the Spirit as an alternative to living according to the flesh. And then he shifts to the reality of suffering. He says we will suffer in this life, but the suffering points to the glory of the life to come. And he explains to these Roman Christians that even though they are suffering for Jesus, they can rest assured that all things work together for the good of those who love Jesus and are called according to His purposes. And then he assures them of their salvation, the hope that they have, as he lays out what we call that golden chain of redemption that we see in verse 28. We know that those who love God, all things work together for the good for them. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, he might be among uh, the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And then in verse 31, He starts to ask questions. You can see there in your text. He starts to ask a series of questions about the work of the Spirit and the power of the Gospel. He says in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? All of these wonderful things about salvation that he's just told them. What shall we say to these things? And the answer to that question is, we should, when we read the gospel, when we hear the gospel, when we understand what Easter is all about, we should say this, God is for me. God is for me. What shall we say to these things? God is for me. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody of any consequence. In verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's the answer to that question? God is for you, and he will graciously give you all things. Then in verse 33, he asks the question, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, who will bring a charge against you? Who will accuse you? Well, we know Satan will. Satan is called the accuser. Satan may bring a charge against you, but it doesn't matter because Satan isn't the prosecutor and Satan isn't the judge. It says here, the reason we know that's true is it says it is God who justifies at the end of verse 33. So if God is the prosecutor and the judge and He doesn't bring a charge against you, who is there to condemn you? No one. Verse 35, he asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is, for the believer, no one. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, nakedness, danger, sword, or anything else you can think of. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. That is what we celebrate today. God is for us, so it doesn't matter who's against us. God has shown us His love by giving Him up for us all. So we know what a gracious giver God is. The only one who can rightfully condemn us has given us grace in His Son Jesus. 
And those who trust in Jesus are justified. Justified means that you've been made right with God. You're no longer condemned. You're justified. And we will never be separated from God's love. We will bask in His love forever and ever and ever. And how is it that we know this is true? Because this really does seem too good to be true, doesn't it? I know I'm a sinner. I know what kinds of dark things run through my mind. I know how selfish I am. I know that when I even try to live righteously, I do it in the wrong way. I know God has every right to condemn me. I don't have a leg to stand on before a holy God. But we're not condemned. And why am I not condemned for all of these things that I think? Why are you not condemned for all these things you do and think? We are not condemned because Jesus was condemned. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because Jesus was condemned. As the hymn writer says, bearing shame and scoffing, which was rude. In my place, condemned, he stood. And he sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Look at verse 34. We learn in verse 34 that the one who would be our accuser, our judge, and our executioner will not condemn us. Four reasons why we can hope in that and know that that's true. He says, who is there to condemn? He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. Let's look at these four things quickly. Number one, Jesus died. There's no one to condemn you because Jesus died in your place. He was the necessary perfect sacrifice. He was the lamb that was slain in our place. But secondly, more than that, if you look at the verse 34, he was raised. He was vindicated. We know he wasn't lying about anything that he said. We know that all the claims that he made were true because God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. All the words are true. The perfect sacrifice is acceptable. And the ultimate judgment is true too. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, one day he will raise everyone from the dead. And there will be a judgment of the righteous and of the unrighteous at the end of the age. He died. He was raised. And third, he's at the right hand of God. It's an interesting thing to think about. We come to Easter, and I wonder if it dawns on our children as we teach them in Sunday school. Well, Jesus is alive. Jesus came to earth as a little baby, and he lived and walked. He died on the cross. He walked out of the tomb. And I think what a kid would say is, well, where is he? Where's Jesus? I want to see him if he's alive. Did you see that picture, Dale? Do you have a copy of that picture I sent you in the email? You can just show this. and Okay, that's my big head. Now, if, if you can see this clearly, uh, which you can't really because of the, the so bright in here, but that is one of those screens that they put in convention halls. That screen there with my giant face uh, 
is, is like as big as the backdrop here. It was just one of those enormous, enormous screens. Yeah, they don't need to see it any better. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so we attended the BGCT, the, the convention, a few years ago, <clears throat> and uh, they've been working on a statement of faith, and uh, it said Jesus, uh, Jesus rose from the dead, and he's coming again. And, and as I read that, we were kind of looking at this in one of our meetings, and I was reading the statement of faith. They were, they, were, they were making a short little statement of faith that they could put in the front of all the books that they publish uh, through the convention for Sunday school literature and things like this. And, and I started looking at that, and I thought, well, well we're missing something there. Um, and so I, I, I stood up uh, to, the, to the microphone there, as you saw in that picture, and the problem was uh, that when I stood up to make my amendment, the camera was like two inches away from the microphone. So it made my head look enormous. Well, immediately, all of my friends who were in the room started taking pictures and putting them all over social media. Look how big Chad's nose is. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, the camera was so close to my face. So I think I rose the next morning to speak to my amendment, and I moved the camera back so it wouldn't be so terrifying uh, for all the people to see my giant head. But I was thinking about this phrase, Jesus died, he rose again, and he's coming again. And I thought back to my systematic theology class with Dr. Yarnell, and he would say to us, don't forget about the ascension. Don't forget about the ascension. Don't forget about where Jesus went. That Jesus rose from the dead. He was here for 40 days and then he rose again. He ascended into heaven and took a seat at the right hand of the Father, as we see there in our verse. He is raised and he is at the right hand of God. So when the kids say, Well, where is Jesus? the answer is, He's alive. And he's doing something right now. And it matters where Jesus is right now and what he's doing right now. Because the work of redemption was finished on the cross. Remember what Jesus said. It is finished. That's what was necessary to make the payment for your sins. But Jesus is still working. He's at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning at God's right hand. And he's doing something else. If you look at the next little phrase... In verse 34, he's interceding for us. Do you know what that means, that word interceding? That means that right now in heaven, believer, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. We're not condemned because Jesus was condemned. He died in our place, but he rose again. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's praying for us. Imagine that would be like the judge saying, at the end of a criminal trial, well, I'm going to pay your fine. And I'm going to do your jail time for you. And so the judge goes and he pays the fine. And he goes and he does the time in jail. And then he comes back to the defendant after everything has been paid. And he says to the defendant, okay, now I'm going to spend the rest of my life praying for you. Every single day. You know, I know of at least two or three people in this church that pray for me. That pray for my family. Every single day. Isn't it powerful to know someone is praying for you? How many had moms who prayed for them? What a powerful thing that is. 
But you know what's more powerful than mama praying for you? Or the deacons praying for you? That Jesus is praying for me. Robert Murray Machane was a Scottish minister back in the early 19th century. Listen to what he said. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room. I love this idea. We've all been in rooms. Maybe you've been in a hotel room with thin walls. and You can hear everything they say over there. But imagine you're in a room and the walls are thin and you can hear Jesus praying for you in the next room. Robert Machane said, if I could hear Jesus Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But then this is what he said. But the distance makes no difference because he is praying for me. So we fear no condemnation this Easter because the only one who condemn us, who can condemn us, is in heaven rooting for us. And he's praying for us. And he's standing in for our good for all eternity. And so if we're not condemned, and that's true, then who can separate us from the love of Christ? The answer? Nobody and nothing. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that means troubles, or distress, that means when the walls feel like they're caving in, we get there, don't we? Uh, the illustration there is a, 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 a group of soldiers going through a very narrow pass and they feel like the, the, the walls of the cavern are, are, are narrowing in on them. Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution? And remember, Jesus did promise persecution to his disciples. Jesus promises persecution to us. Or famine, great neediness, or nakedness, which means our humiliation, or danger, or sword. You know what sword means there? You know what Paul's talking about? Execution. He's saying, even if they take me, and they wind up executing me. I have no fear. Even that worst thing that I can possibly imagine cannot separate me from the love of Jesus Christ. And nothing in this universe is going to separate you from Christ, believer. Paul goes on to say, you are more than a conqueror over all these things. Why? How are we more than conquerors? How is it that we're not condemned? How is it that we will never be separated? Because Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. I think of my favorite little toy from childhood. And I know I've shown them to you before. Y'all remember what his name is? This is Mickey Mouse. They knew over here. And I've... Use Mickey Mouse for some illustrations because it's such a good illustration. This is Mickey Mouse, and Mickey Mouse was my favorite toy when I was a little bitty one. And you can see I loved Mickey Mouse well. You see the place where Mickey Mouse ear used to be, and I guess I ripped it off on accident, and it got sewed back in the wrong spot. You can see there. And you can see that his little pants got ripped, and... Mickey Mouse has got a few places where the stuffing is coming out. He's dirty. He's not clean. His nose is missing. <laughs> the little Mickey Mouse Club sticker is gone. 
But uh, I, I played with this toy, and I loved this toy, and it's one of the things I can remember from being little bitty, is I can remember loving this little toy. And I remember sleeping with it and carrying it around everywhere we went. I really loved my Mickey Mouse. And I guess I got too old to play with it at some point. Maybe I started playing with my Star Wars toys, and, but my mom took Mickey Mouse, and she put him in a little plastic bag, and she put him up somewhere, and Several years ago, she pulled Mickey Mouse out of a closet and said, look what I have. And I said, it's Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and you know where I keep Mickey Mouse now? I keep him, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm glad you're listening. I keep Mickey Mouse in my closet, at the very top of my closet, and I can always see him up there. See your Mickey Mouse every morning, you know. And I know it's just an old stuffed animal. But it means something to me, I think, because I do remember it as a child. I remember my little, my little Mickey Mouse here. And uh, even though he looks so awful, you know, it's an interesting thing. Whenever I pull Mickey Mouse down out of the closet, the kids still want to hold. The kids want to hold him and play with Mickey Mouse. And I pulled him out of the closet yesterday, and and uh, Melissa was holding Torvi. Uh, she grabbed Mickey Mouse and she hugged Mickey Mouse. I know I said, give him back. <laughs> you know why I said that? Because Mickey Mouse is mine. <laughs> Mickey Mouse is mine. Not a big deal, just a stuffed Mickey Mouse and it's kind of sad that it looks like it comes from like way in the past. It makes me feel like maybe I come from way in the past too. But you know, we're all kind of like God's Mickey Mouse, aren't we? We've been worn out. We've been beat up by sin. Maybe you feel like your ears sewn on back in the wrong place. We're dirty. We're pitiful. But to Jesus, we are precious. To Jesus, even if you feel that way today, if you feel worn up, beat up by sin, sin-stained, pitiful, unsavable, irredeemable, maybe you feel like there's no way you and God could ever be on good terms. Sinner, do you know that you're precious to Jesus? And the promise is that if you will come to Jesus and you will confess that Jesus is Lord, if you will trust in His perfect sacrifice on the cross, and you will trust in His goodness instead of your own, that He will save you because you are precious to Him. And if you've truly put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Here's what Jesus says about you. You're mine. And I'm never letting you go. You're mine. And I'm never letting you go. No condemnation. No separation. Nothing to prove. Why? Because He died. He's risen. He reigns. And He intercedes. And His love is more powerful than anything you will ever face. <laughs>